Welcome to AudioPie's English Literature and Language Show. You can dip into huge chunks of over 19 series for free and learn on the go. Happy listening, everyone. Welcome back to another podcast on Willie Russell's Blood Brothers. Let's start with a question. How has a play about two Scouse brothers in the 1980s become a worldwide success, which ran for 24 years in London's West End? Well, Bill Kenwright, the producer who worked with Willie Russell on the London production, has his own opinion. The Blood Brothers is a very simple story, but everything about it is epic. So, in other words, although the characters are ordinary and the setting is very specific in time and place, the way the story is told turns it into something more. It becomes a universal tragedy, very much like ancient Greek drama. In this podcast, we're going to look at some of the ways in which Russell uses structural devices to create this epic feeling. Well, firstly, the play has a circular structure. This means it begins and ends in the same place at the moment when Mickey and Edward die. The opening stage direction tells us. The lights come up to show a reenactment of the final moments of the play. To reinforce this feeling of coming full circle, the narrator is present at the beginning and at the end, saying very similar words. And the final song, "Tell Me It's Not True," is used as the overture. Apart from the opening, the action is chronological. Running from before the twins are born up to their adulthood, this makes the choice of opening feel dramatic and significant. So, why has Russell chosen to do this? Well, there is a sense of doom or fate about it. By showing us the ending, Russell creates a feeling that the disaster is inevitable. In ancient Greek tragedy, the hero was destined for destruction by fate, and nothing could change that. It was a very different idea of tragedy from Shakespeare's later plays, for instance, where often it is a weakness or flaw in the hero's character which starts off the chain of events. Shakespeare's tragedies feel avoidable. Blood Brothers doesn't feel like that. It's not because of any character flaw in Mickey or Edward that the brothers die. In fact, the play implies that if the other brother had been chosen, the outcome would be the same. It's predestined. It's inevitable. The fact that the audience sees their deaths right at the beginning is one way Russell creates this feeling of foreboding. And interestingly, having built up this sense of fate so overwhelmingly, Russell has the narrator question it at the end. Perhaps it's not fate at all, but social injustice that is the cause. Or could it be what we, the English, have come to know as class? Another technique Russell uses to strengthen this sense of inevitability is recurring motifs. A motif is a recurring idea or image which keeps cropping up throughout the work. In this play, there are several motifs drawn from superstition, such as the shoes on the table and the song "The Devil's Got Your Number." These add to the feeling that the characters are trapped by something stronger than themselves. That they can't escape the inevitable end.
The motif of guns is also important here. Guns crop up throughout the play, changing from the toys the children use in play to the real weapon Sammy uses to rob the petrol station and which eventually kills Edward. The early children's games foreshadow the later tragedy. Another structural device is the use of the narrator. In ancient Greek drama, there was a chorus which would introduce the story and comment to the audience on what was happening in the play. The narrator in Blood Brothers acts rather like a chorus. Yes, his first line is... So did you hear the story of the Johnston twins? It's clear he's going to be a storyteller, and he does fulfil that role. He is a constant reminder that we're watching a play, that the events aren't real. This creates a bit of distance between the audience and the events. We're asked to judge what's happening on stage. However, this narrator is different from a classical chorus because he's on stage almost all the time and actually gets involved in the action by taking on minor roles, like the gynaecologist and the bus conductor. Perhaps he represents us, ordinary people, to show that no one can help or prevent what's going to happen. On the other hand, some people see the narrator as quite a sinister figure. He continually refers to superstition and evil in his lines, and the fact that he is constantly there in the shadows can seem quite threatening. He can speak quite threateningly too. For example, when he says to Mrs Johnston, Happy are you, contented lass, wiped up what happened, forgotten the past. And to Mrs Lyons, Did you forget you've got some debts to pay? About the reckoning day. At other times, he can seem quite sympathetic, especially in Act 2, when he comments on the three teenagers enjoying their summer together. Who do dare tell the lambs in spring what fate the later seasons bring? Who tell the girl in the middle of the pair the price she'll pay for being there? The actor Andrew Schofield is someone who has thought more about the narrator's role than most. He was the actor who played the role in the original production. He says... I saw the narrator as one of the old storytellers and a bit like uh, the Greek chorus. I don't see him as a sinister person. He's not cruel or sly. Of course, as you read the play, you need to make your own mind up about the ways the narrator can be presented and how he impacts on an audience. Every director of the play will have his or her own take on it. There are other aspects of structure which we will need to think about as we revise the play. This podcast has only dealt with the main features. Look out for the way Russell handles the passage of time and think about ways in which he builds up parallels and contrasts between the characters' lives, especially the two contrasting pairs of Mrs Johnston and Mrs Lyons, and of course Mickey and Edward. A couple of obvious examples here are the contrasting scenes showing the boys at their different schools and when they are brought home by the policeman. These scenes are deliberately set alongside each other to emphasise the differences in their experiences. We'll look at some of these features in other podcasts, but for now, that concludes our review of some of the main structural features. There's a lot to think about, but that's a good thing. There's certainly plenty for you to write about in your exam. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in the next pod.
We hope you enjoyed the episode. Don't forget to search for and listen to the next episode in the series to build your topic knowledge. Hit the Acast Plus link in the show description to become a premium supporter and unlock access to every episode in every series for as long as you need. We also make GCSE and A-level content for history, RE, sociology and psychology. Happy listening, everyone.